Hey, welcome back to the Pastor Podcast. Thanks for listening. And as we continue through the New Testament, we begin today with some of the shorter letters of Paul, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. These letters tend to be more single-focused than the longer letters that we've been through, maybe in some cases more pointed. A lot in here will try to do justice to your time and not get bogged down, but there are some interesting things to see here along the way. Yeah, welcome. We're glad to have you join us here as we jump right into the book of Galatians. And I think you'll find as you jump into this book, a very clearly written letter from Paul and a really deep source of our own Reformed theology and understanding of who God is. I think, Michael, that Galatians is one of Paul's sharpest letters really pretty single focus. There are a group of people in Galatia that are telling the church that they have to go back to following Jewish customs, and Paul is just running headlong into it. I think for Paul, this is some of Paul's harshest language, not really toward the church, though he says some hard things to the church, but he says some really pretty pointed things about these people and their ideas. And I think for Paul, that's a reflection that he sees this as a going backwards. When they're advocating circumcision and legal codes, Paul understands that they want to take the grace that we've been given in Christ and throw it out the window and go back to following the law. And in some ways, this is a very theologically developed letter. And in other ways, it's a little bit of a fistfight. Yeah, absolutely. I think for Paul, the idea of putting our trust in the law as a defining mark of who we are as Christians is for him not doing justice to the reality that God has called us as we are. So if God has called us as Gentiles, then God intends to save us as Gentiles. And there's really no hierarchical kind of meaning. And you get a sense that maybe the conversation that was happening suggested that there may be some merit to going back to some of those legal codes of old and that the Christians who did that were closer to God than Christians who didn't. And Paul has absolutely no time or place for that. And he not only condemns those who preach that, but he even says uh, to the Gentiles that they are childish to even attempt to think that they should go in that direction. Yeah, he tells them they're going backwards. And I think the idea for Paul here is that though the law is good, when we put our trust in anything other than the grace of Christ, we're misguided. And I think Paul here sees a congregation in danger of being misled and taken astray by these traveling preachers who seem to be Christians, but who advocate a Jewish lifestyle, who require circumcision and legal codes and obedience to the law. And I think for Paul, that looks like abandoning Christ, or at least abandoning the idea of grace. Absolutely. In fact, he uses the strong language of slavery. He says over in chapter 4, verse 9, Do you wish to be enslaved by them all again? Do, do you wish to be slaves to nature? And the reality is that Paul wants to make it clear that the work that God does in us is supernatural work. And so therefore, physical circumcision is not necessary for God to work salvation within us. And so the reverse of that seems to be true, that those teaching in these churches, in this church, are suggesting that the only way to salvation is through those physical acts that bring one's body in alignment with the law. And Paul wants to make the argument that salvation is spiritual, and so therefore the seal and the appearance of that salvation can only be measured by grace, by trust, by faith, not by what we do to our bodies. And I think, Michael, 
and you and I have talked, a letter like Galatians is a little bit difficult for modern Christians to track with because Paul here is so passionate about these arguments. But in our day and age, they're just not issues that come to the surface at all. Nobody's arguing about circumcision. Nobody's arguing about what foods we eat or what day we do things on. We just don't track with these problems. And so we read a book like Galatians and we see angry Paul. It doesn't really dawn on us why he's so invested in this. I do think, though, that there are some places where in the context of this argument, we do get some wonderful stuff. You know, at the end of chapter three, there's this beautiful verse. There's no longer Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I think as Paul argues unity, we maybe get our best chance to listen in on this letter in a meaningful way. Absolutely. And I think another thing that I would point out is that Paul, in making this argument, is once again displaying this desire to remain somewhere firmly rooted in the middle. In other words, he doesn't want to say that faith doesn't have resulting works. If you look in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not, Paul says. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So here Paul is going to be saying two things almost in opposition. That one... We are saved by grace. We're saved by the inward work of the Spirit, God working within us, Gentile or Jew. But Paul's also not going to outright condemn the law. He's not going to say that the law is in total bad. He's just going to say that the law, as he did in Romans, he's going to say the law points out where our sinfulness controls us. And the law does that through its physical outworking and physical display. So, If you are uncircumcised, as many of these in the Galatian community would be, then the proper response to salvation isn't to change your body, but it's rather for your heart to be circumcised, right? It's it's that the work of God is real, but instead of that work looking like the work of the law, the work looks like the work of the Spirit, and that is something internal that is transformational. I think that for Paul, the simple fact is that the law can convince us we need saved, but it cannot save us because we're unable to keep it. And I do think that leads him into what is for us a helpful conversation. And I think maybe we best encounter Galatians as modern Christians in probably chapter five, this idea of freedom, that as we're set free, what does it mean to be free in Christ? Does it mean free to do whatever we want? No, Paul clearly says it doesn't. Does it mean that we no longer have restrictions, that we no longer have things that are right and wrong, that we have to do, that we're expected to do? And Paul, I think, walks us through this idea that as Christians, we have a responsibility in Christ to seek the right choices in the way that our faith manifests itself in our life. So we get here this wonderful passage, the works of the flesh, and in contrast, the fruits of the Spirit. In other words, We are to do works. We do live under a law, but it's not a law that condemns us. It's a law that we receive in Christ that guides us. 
It is a way that we are called to live as people who follow Jesus. And it sounds like a subtle difference, but I think for Paul, it's just monumentally important as to which comes first. The yes. law doesn't lead us to be saved. Being saved gives us a way to live and an expectation of, of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, in these final words here in Galatians, you really see that for Paul, there's really not even hardly a transition. It's, it's this seamless flow from what we believe to what we do. And he just names, the, here are the acts of the flesh, the sexual immorality, impurity, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. And he flows right into these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And as he transitions into these, we see that the reality of God's inner working in our hearts flows out of us freely, that we are transformed as people into a body. That's what he talks about, especially in those letters to the Corinthians, about how it fashions us into one. But here, the oneness is really kind of in the back seat a little bit. It, there's no slave, no free. There's no Greek or there's no Jew. There's unity in that sense. But really what Paul's saying is that the unity is found because God's salvific work needs no law to make it happen. It doesn't need any marks on our bodies. God can work from within us. And that transformation then works through us to change the world in which we live. And that is, I think, to some great extent, a place where we as Reformed Christians have drawn a lot of our theological understanding of God, that it's not what we do that garners salvation, but it's what God does in us. And therefore, how we respond to that work is how we are measured as those who are faithful. I think as Paul moves to the end of the book, we have this wonderful verse, verse 10 of chapter 6. So then whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all. And again, I'm struck with how deeply Paul cares about the big picture, that in the midst of these individual arguments and fighting with these people or those people or trying to get these people to get the right idea or do the right thing, in the background is always Paul's vision for the church as a place of unity, of mutual love and care and service and how wonderfully he connects our individual life to our communal life in the church. That seems for Paul just to always be there. Yeah, and very difficult circumstances in which he tries to speak that. He tries to talk about how we're bound together and and the nature of our fellowship should look like in places that are fraught with angry discussions and disagreements and even what Paul identifies as contrary teachings. And yet, in those places, the work of God is real and present. And when you say that, Clint, it kind of makes me think, you know, if we look at it from that vantage, it may be fair to say that Galatians is not just about the inner working of God the Spirit in us, but what God in that individual work is capable of producing in us, plural, in all of us. Because these fruits of the Spirit can only be lived out with others. You can only have forbearance for another person if there's another person. And so the truth of what that community looks like is not just individual. It always has something to say about our life together. Yeah, I think as a mark of pastoring, you have to say that Paul balances well the difference between our personal faith and our church life. So that for Paul, our own individual life in the Spirit is always connected to the life of the bigger picture of the church. And the church is the place in which we practice living in the Spirit with those who follow Jesus with us. 
Yeah, a strong letter. I think a particularly strong ending. I would encourage readers to read chapter five, particularly slowly, carefully. There's a lot in there for us, I think. Moving on in your reading, you're going to come to the book of Ephesians. And I think what is maybe a helpful way to begin this book is just with the knowledge that Ephesus is actually a religious capital of the world at this time. It hosts one of the largest temples in the ancient world, the Temple to Diana. And you can just sort of imagine in the middle of this very cosmopolitan city is an entire industry of people who are selling religious wares. And this is a letter where Paul's going to talk about, in his own words, spiritual warfare. And so context of who this letter was sent to compared to the kinds of issues that Paul's going to raise in the letter. I think all of that comes together in a really interesting way here. It does. The letter to the Ephesians is interesting in several ways. It is an unusual letter for Paul, and that's led Bible scholars to argue about whether he actually writes it or not. It claims that it's of Paul, and it says that it was written while he's in prison. We don't know which imprisonment, but there are a few of these prison letters, and Ephesus is thought to be one of them. However, you might notice some of the things that scholars argue about as you read this book, different language little different structure. It sounds not like some of what we've heard Paul say before, and all of that has contributed to this argument. Also, it's a little bit, it's a little bit of a messy letter. For instance, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 are one sentence in the Greek. So when you read that in English, try to imagine that those 11 verses are crammed together in one sentence. There's not a high school English teacher in the country that would let you get away with that. And Paul doesn't do that other places. Now, whether that means anything or not, I don't know. But you may notice some of that as you read this. The truth is, as you go on to this letter and as you make your way into it, you're also going to find uh, that there are some real gems uh, sparkled throughout here. Uh, there's lots of different things that um, I'm certain you've heard before. At the end of chapter 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is working in us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. There's some beautiful, almost prayer aspects uh, written throughout this letter. And you get the sense that uh, the writer is trying to make a case once again for unity in the midst of some possibly significant disagreement. Michael, I think I've probably done more highlighting per page in Ephesians than anything we've read so far. This letter is full of beautiful verses, of wonderful devotional material. We should mention from a Reformed perspective, there's probably not a better summary of the Reformed understanding of the faith than Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. We are what God has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. That's a wonderful summary of the faith. We are saved by grace that we access through our belief. And it's not by works, but in Christ we are created to do good works. That's a pretty clear calling, and I think a wonderful summary of our Presbyterian thinking. 
It seems to me that Ephesians does translate better in the quote-unquote modern world because while the issue still here is Gentile and Jewish relationships, the language here is more open-ended. And I think Ephesians could more readily be applied to some of the divisions in our world, black and white, male and female, racial or ethnic. I think that some of the language of Ephesians allows us to better able overlay our own situations and our own struggles into it. It's less dated, it feels to me. You know, some of that might be, I've done some reading, some scholars have suggested that instead of this being a letter written to one church, it was possibly an encyclical written to lots of churches. And if that's true, then that would be a real connection point there, Clint, because in some ways, this was possibly not intended for just one small group of people. And, you know, oh, once again, Cephas is getting after it again. We got to call Cephas out for that wrong teaching. It may be even in its intention, a little bit wider scoped and That may help us to sort of see ourselves in it a little bit easier as well. Yeah, there's, again, just some wonderful devotional material, speaking the truth in love. We grow in every way. I think especially the last part of chapter 4, as Paul again returns to the idea of our old life and our new life, and as we move from verse 25 on, you know, put away falsehood, be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I think it's interesting to think about who might be in this church. Thieves should give up stealing so that they have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouth, but only what's useful for building up. Again, this wonderful balance of our individual repentance and our individual journeys and the way in which it overlaps the community. I mean, it's a very interesting thing to tell someone that they need to stop stealing so that they can contribute to the needs of others. Paul has a wonderful way of seeing possibility for people. Yeah, absolutely. And that possibility is deeply rooted in his understanding of who God is. And I think you see that in chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And that is an audacious thing to call a group of people. Follow God's example. Live as Jesus lived. I mean, even in Paul's letter to the Romans, you heard that language of, I do what I don't want to do, and and I have this struggle within me. But here he says, follow God's example, and therefore live this way. And what follows are certainly some encouraging words. But if we're going to read closely, also some incredibly challenging words. Um, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here we're going to have some language about wives and husbands. We're going to have some very difficult language uh, for children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the right way. All of these are extensions for Paul, not just of the right way to live, but for him, they're extensions of living as God lives, to to live in the example of the one who submitted his life for others, who lived for something more than the continuance of his own life. And the sort of social teaching that follows all flows out of that initial assumption. Yeah, and I think we could be disappointed with Paul that he doesn't go far enough. It would be nice to hear him say, get rid of slavery. It would be nice to hear him say, husbands and wives treat each other as equal partners. It would be nice to hear some of those social issues framed where we are in this day and age and maybe reflecting the ways in which we have grown. But I think what we have to understand here, first, two things probably, Michael. First, Paul is out front of his culture. In saying some of these things, 
Paul is himself showing a progress beyond the average for his day. And secondly, Paul's focus on the church seems to lead him to a place where he wants the church not to be at odds with the world. In other words, I think Paul wants when people look at the church for them to see unity, respect, order, and not broken relationships, not conflict, not tension. And so some of what I think Paul says here reflects that idea that the church should be, for the most part, peaceful waters. Yeah, and you mentioned it before, Clint, but it's worth saying, think about the broad swath of people he's talking to here, the church, and maybe even churches that he's writing to, clearly span a lot of just straight-up diversity, right? If you've got slaves, and you've got masters, and you've got husbands and wives and children, and you have those who are tempted by stealing, and you have those who are tempted to hoard to themselves. I mean, you're you're speaking of a large group of people here. And the fact that Paul frames the letter in the way that he does, that we are all partakers in the unity of Christ because of Christ's willingness to stand in our place, this is a beautiful source of good news with a capital G for the whole world, for us today, as well as to the original people who received this letter. Absolutely. I think as we end this letter again, just some great stuff in here. Read carefully. Listen to some of these verses. I would commend to you the last couple verses of chapter 4. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with any malice and be kind to each other. Be tenderhearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That, for me, could be life verses. I could read those every day, not get them right, but they would be a wonderful path if we could follow them. Final note here for Ephesians. You'll note at the end of chapter 6, probably something that you heard at some point in your Sunday school time about the armor of God, the idea of all of the different uh, breastplate and the the shield and all of the, the helmet of salvation, all of these different elements of that. And I think what you see in this, is that for Paul, these outward realities always have a spiritual counterpart. And it is that spiritual counterpart that Paul wants to always be translating out in front for the church so that they see that unity together and being transformed as the people of God is not just about looking to the world in a certain way, but it's about contending with the spiritual forces that surround us faithfully. And those for Paul are not dualistic. In other words, I mean that they're not in some ways like different aspects. They're, they're actually both true. And he spins between the two of them seamlessly. Michael, I think you're 100% right, and I think the language agrees with you. People read this passage and they envision a soldier, and we naturally think that Paul's telling us to go out and attack evil. But everything listed here, with the exception of the Word of God as a sword, is defensive. And five or six times, Paul says in this passage, stand firm. And I think what we see in that is that this isn't some call to go out and fight evil. We have enough to do standing our ground and not letting evil come into our midst. We don't have to go looking for it. We are not the tip of the spear. We're standing there with shield and with word and with righteousness and with truth, trying to keep evil from coming in 
and disrupting our fellowship. And I, I think when you read this carefully, it's really a masterful sermon illustration. And, you know, there's lots of communities, Clint, that are struggling with that, right? And Paul's writing to them. Corinthians, uh, certainly uh, Galatians. He's writing to these people who are really struggling to stand firm. And I think that's one of the things that I love about Philippians, because if I was going to sort of put out there, not that this series is about what we do or don't like, but Philippians is very high up my list of the the pastoral letters. And, and I think the reason for that is, Clint, this letter just exudes a kind of warmth. It has a tone and a tenor that, for me, you read some of Paul's comments to the Corinthians, and I kind of curl up and I kind of feel bad inside. I come to the Philippians, and I just feel encouraged, and I feel a kind of pastoral connection here that I think is beautiful and and so much good teaching in this letter. I'm looking forward to everyone getting to read this together because it's just a great passage. I think it's one of Paul's warmest letters. I think you're right in that. It's really kind of a friendship letter. There's not a lot of criticism in it. There's a lot of praise in it. Again, Paul is writing this letter from prison, but he's doing so in such a way that he's trying to use his situation to encourage the Philippians in their own situation. I don't know. This would be impossible to know. This reads like the church in Philippi may have been Paul's favorite. I don't know if that's fair, but... He's he's certainly not unhappy with them. Absolutely. At least for the letters that we have, they seem to be in a great relationship. You know, anyone who has spent some time in the New Testament is going to be, at least maybe you wouldn't know it by name, but you're going to be aware of what we call the Christ hymn in chapter 2. Some Bible scholars point this out. Um, If you have it in your Bible, once you get to chapter 2, you're going to see that sort of offset there, almost like poetry. And that is a visual note to point out to you that This might actually be a hymn. Paul might be quoting as a source uh, an ancient part of the Christian church's worship. And there's been lots of studies and and works written about this, and there's no way we're going to really get to the depth of it. But just the beauty of how we see Christ going from the very height of his place with God, and then he descends, and in all of its senses, the spiritual sense and the physical sense, even unto death on the cross. And then you have this reverse movement in verse 9, God exalts him to the highest place again. And That movement from high to low to high is in some ways the movement to this letter because Paul's going to remind the Philippians that we shouldn't have confidence in our flesh. We shouldn't put stake in ourselves. We shouldn't put our faith in the stuff of the below because even in our death, we'll be raised again with Christ. And that is the ever enduring confidence that we have as those who are bound up with Christ. Yeah, there's a wonderful verse in chapter 1 where Paul says, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. And saying that in prison is for Paul a real possibility. Lots of scholars suggest that Paul doesn't know whether he will be released, whether he will maybe die in his own circumstances. And so he begins, I think, by reminding the Philippians that whether or not they see him again, he is in the hands of Christ. They are in the hands of Christ. And then chapter two, this wonderful, beautiful moment where he shines a light on what it means that they're in the hands of Christ and who Christ is. Who who is it that has their life in his hands? In some ways, you might be able to read Philippians as a scriptural antidote to the belief 
that being Christian means life is always easy. Because in truth, our faith doesn't make the circumstances significantly lighter. It's not as if the Christian will never experience suffering. Paul writes this letter from a position of suffering to a people who he says suffering is a reality of life. But yet, we don't gain our strength from the circumstances that surround us. But rather, like he says in chapter 3, verse 12, not having already obtained this or having already arrived at the goal, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Friends, there's so much pastoral wisdom in that. We don't live for the ease of this day, but we live to press on, to press on to the work of Christ, to what we've been called to. And he says, if you're mature, you'll take on this point of view that we should live up to what we have been called and what we've obtained and that we should, even in the midst of tears and difficulty, we should press on. And and then we get to a verse which certainly you all have heard at some point, Philippians 4.13. He says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Then he says, reminding them that in our weakness, we need each other. He says in verse 14 of that chapter, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. And so here it comes full circle. I, I think in this letter, Paul points out Jesus Christ comes from on high. He joins us in our suffering. He rises again. And that is a reminder to us that we will be risen with him. And then here we're reminded that even as we suffer now, we do not do so alone. But as we press on towards the goal, we are bound together with those who are also pressing on. And together, we will experience the grace of Christ for today. It's interesting, Michael, not a very long letter, but Paul really hits both sides of the Christian life. In chapter 3, he points out that whatever good he had in his life, whatever he had attained, whatever awards he had earned, whatever he had achieved, compared to Christ, they mean nothing. And then on the other hand, he encourages the church, if they're at their lowest point, to look beyond their life and find joy in Christ. So, We find here these two bookends, not to trust our own accomplishments, but also to persevere in the midst of struggle. And that both of those things guide us as we follow Christ. That our life is not about pursuing our own achievements, nor is our struggle somehow a negation of God's goodness. And this letter is sometimes called the epistle or the letter of joy because Paul, especially late in the letter, fourth chapter on, uses the word rejoice frequently. You know, Clint, I wonder if you agree with this. I think one of the interesting facets of reading the Bible in the way that we're doing it is it really shines a light on how many of these letters that are written do share significant similarities. It also shines a light on how different they are in tone and in purpose. And I think we see that once again as we come to the fourth letter that we are discussing, Colossians, because in here we almost have what are some sections that are almost verbatim of what we saw in Galatians, uh, but yet it has its own tone. Yeah, again, a letter that's considered one of Paul's prison letters. And I think Colossians is interesting because Paul doesn't exactly explain what it is, but it seems like the Christians in the Colossian church are chasing some heresy. The idea is maybe it has to do with angels or stars or spirits of the universe or something. Again, Bible scholars try to 
figure this stuff out. But it's amazing that Paul isn't too interested with naming it. He is instead interested in giving the antidote. And so he does what he always does. He just tries to focus these Christians' eyes back upon Jesus. It is interesting how often Paul says the same thing, but in different ways, depending on who he's writing to. Yeah, very much. I think you see in the beginning of this letter, maybe a little bit more distance, that he doesn't have the same kind of unique and close relationships with this congregation. He talks about, since the day that we've heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. There's this kind of feeling here that Paul's maybe sort of shooting an arrow into a little bit of darkness. He's heard about this thing that needs addressed. And and yet, as he speaks to it, he very much wants to hit right to the heart of the fact that this community shouldn't be, in Paul's own words here, I'm taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Their minds shouldn't be caught and trapped on things that are heady and that, that distract them from Christ. But like you said, Clint, they need to be drawn back to Christ because they died with Christ. And so therefore, all of these forces that they're thinking about, these things that are so real in, in their conversations really fall away as they are those made to live with Christ. Yeah, and maybe part of that difference, Michael, is that Paul hasn't been to this church. This isn't one that he starts. A co-worker founds this church, and Paul's writing to them as Paul, but not as the one who has been with them. He hasn't been their pastor, so to speak. He's writing as an advisor. I would want to point out that in verse 15 of chapter 1, we get another one of these sections, sometimes referred to as a Christ hymn or a Christ poem, different than Philippians, but to the same end, that the focus would be on the person of Christ, on the nature of Christ. This time, I think, really highlighting Christ's divinity, his spirituality, his role in creation. Perhaps Paul's way of saying, don't look to anything else out there for spiritual truth. You need only look to Jesus to find all of that. Maybe in a world that is, in our own world, that is really defined by sort of consumerist choices, we may really have a advantage to look at this letter and to draw a great amount of meaning because literally you go to the store and you're surrounded with choices of what you're going to buy, what you're going to consume, what you're going to, in some cases, wear and and allow to become, in some meaningful ways, your own personal brand. And, and all of this vying for your attention and for your dollar is in some ways connected here because in reality, Christ should be first. He should be supreme, as it says in that first chapter. And we should recognize that if we died with Christ and then we've been made alive with him, our minds should be on his things, not our things. We shouldn't be captivated by the glitzy, by the shiny. We should be committed to those things that are beyond our current experience of the world, to the thing that is even more true, and that is Jesus Christ risen, calling us to be with him. Michael, I don't know what the number would be, but it would be well into the hundreds. The number of times during our day that someone or something tries to sell us something in email, in commercial, in print, in radio, on the computer, we are assaulted daily with the idea of stuff for us. And how do you put that in conversation with Paul's words, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth? That's a challenging line of thinking in our day and age. We are comfortable. 
We are first world Christians. We are Americans. Most of us have some level of financial security, some level of freedom. And Paul says, don't let yourself become earthly minded. That's a good word to 21st century Presbyterians who live in America. And, you know, that temptation of hierarchy that lives amidst uh, the churches where they're trying to figure out where the higher spiritual gifts are, kind of like the Corinthians. Paul once again returns to something that we've heard before in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and in all. He's going to go on to talk about the unity in Christ. That's a theme we've heard before. And then he's going to go back to words, almost the exact words, a little condensed, about submission again. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, uh, slave masters. I mean, here we have once again this just natural connectedness. What Christ has done changes something in the world. And so therefore, as we set our minds on the higher things, we're united together and we're united around this mutual submission to find ways that we can humble ourselves so that we might advance the body of Christ. And I think, and, and once again, in these words, we're encouraged to, to be the church we're called to be. Yeah, I would suggest that anybody reading this letter pay particular attention in chapter 3, verses 11 through 17. You could read that every day and find something in it instructive and challenging. Colossians has these wonderful verses. You know, in chapter 4, devote yourselves to prayer, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, Let your speech always be gracious so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. I think this is one of those letters that just along the way you find these wonderful nuggets that are challenging, that are affirming, that are devotional, um, spiritual. And I, I think we could aspire to live to much of this letter and be better off for it. At our best, but more so at our worst, We're doing what the church has always done. The church has never been made up of super saints who get it right, but regular people trying to follow Jesus together and working through the bumps and bruises as they do it. And it is amazing in those respects, though some of the language is dated and some of the issues are foreign to us, how remarkably modern Paul's words can sound as we try to be the church. Friends, we're grateful that you have taken time to join us for these conversations and hope that you find in these letters not only God's word to these churches and to those Christians, but God's words to you. As we continue on in this journey together, we want to thank you for listening to these podcasts and want to continue to encourage you to give us feedback, give us a call or email or go to the Facebook group. Let us know what you're thinking and um, how we might in these discussions be able to engage with your own thoughts and your own explorations of Scripture. That being said, we look forward to continuing to read with you this week and look forward to speaking with you again on the next podcast.